Hello, and thanks so much for checking out the Coin Stories podcast video page. I'm so excited to share this bonus episode today with one of my favorite macroeconomic strategists, David Hunter, also known as Dave Contrarian on Twitter. My last conversation with David was one of my most popular episodes, and I thought it was a good time to bring him back to talk about everything happening with the Federal Reserve, tapering stocks and inflation. Now, David is not a Bitcoiner. He has 48 years of experience in financial markets, and he's predicting a deflationary bust and a global financial crisis, the likes of which we have never seen. Now, if that happens, of course, it will impact digital assets like Bitcoin. And David just wants everyone to be prepared and take steps to protect their hard-earned money. Here's David. David, thank you so much for joining me again. I'm super excited to chat with you. And it's a really interesting week because a lot is happening in the markets. We're hearing about taper talks. So I just want to start with sort of your overall view of what's happening right now. We've been in a 39-year secular market. And I know people are getting upset about some of the recent pullbacks. But you know, you talk about this on Twitter. We're still at all-time highs, right? Yeah. Hi, Natalie. First of all, uh, it's good to see you again. Um, yeah, it's, it's really an interesting period because we are very late in a 39-year secular bull market. And that means volatility is going to be probably greater than ever. And people are reacting to short-term pullbacks as if, you know, this is the end and we've got to, you know, we've got to bail out. And it, it's hard to get people to understand, yes, from a long-term perspective, we're at the you know the extreme end of uh, people being all in and being bullish, but at the same time, given how far we've come, people are so skeptical of the market that it tells you we're just not there yet. But we we still have so much cash on the sidelines, right? So why are investors so nervous, and why are you so confident that we're still going to keep climbing up to some of these even even higher numbers like the S and P at five thousand, like you predicted? Yeah, there is there is a lot of cash on the sidelines. You know, it doesn't mean that seven trillion dollars in in money market is all going is all destined for the stock market. But um, we are seeing people get more invested. Certainly, the retail public was skeptical of this market for years um, because of some of the other bear markets we've had along the way, um, and they are now partly because of Robinhood and and the mem stocks, et cetera. Um, they are much more invested today, much more engaged in, in equity investing. So, so that's a sign we're getting farther along. Um, I, I think hedge funds go in and out of the market. And my sense right now is that they had gotten kind of bearish. Everybody seems to be looking for a top. So uh, from, a, you know, from a near-term standpoint, I think there is a lot of cash on the sidelines that is destined for the stock market. Um, and you know, I, I see that as the fuel that will take us through what I call the last leg of this secular bull market. And typically a, a final leg will be um, the steepest. And although you can step back and say, we've been parabolic for much of the last year um, because it has, you know, we've doubled in, in 18 months. Um, I think we're even going to get steeper here. So I'm, you know, I'm expecting 15 or 20% as a final move that could happen in, you know, a matter of a few months. Well, what do you think about the Federal Reserve's taper talk? Do you think that that's going to happen? And do you think that that's a good idea? Should we have been tapering a while ago? I know last year when we pulled some money off the balance sheet, there was a little bit of a dip, right? Yeah, definitely. I, and it was funny because it was a few months 
after we had shut down. So we were in the summer of 2020 and they pulled, I forget how much, a few hundred billion maybe out of the market um, that July. And it, it, you know, it, it did cause some of what I think was um, the pullback in the market through the fall. Um, and I think here, uh, I've been talking about the Fed ultimately having to react to the inflation and tighten, uh, but that we would see the melt up first. And I think what we saw yesterday in, in Powell's uh, comments and in the policy um, uh, minutes, it's pretty clear that um, they are moving towards tightening, obviously. I think taper is, you know, the Fed loves to move in baby steps. They don't want to disrupt things. So taper is kind of your first step. They're talking about reducing, you know, 120 billion a month down by 15 billion each month as we go forward. So when does that start? Obviously in August, we had some hawks tell us it was going to start in September or that they thought it should. Uh, I pretty much pushed back on that and said, I don't think you'll see it before late this year. And that's still my view. It doesn't surprise me what, he, what Powell said yesterday. It could come as early as November, but more likely December. And I think that falls right in line. Again, it's not tightening when you reduce 120 billion that's going into the market to um, you know, 105 billion. That's still easing. So I, I think the street gets a little bit uh, ahead of the game and worries too much because they know it's coming to an end at some point. They want to jump the gun. Um, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, yesterday was a signal that you do have a few months here where things are going to run. Well, David, you're such an expert in this, and I want to be conscientious of the people that might be watching who are very curious and want to learn more, and they're trying to understand sort of our economic system, but maybe don't fully understand quantitative easing or tapering. Could you kind of give maybe a breakdown or a summary of how the average person can maybe understand what tapering means and why the government at this point probably has to do it pretty soon? Sure. Yeah. So I'll use, I'll, I'll talk about three definitions. One is um, tapering, one is quantitative easing, and one is quantitative tightening. So uh, quantitative easing is um, where the Fed is basically creating additional money, putting it into the system. So our money supply is expanding. Um, quantitative tightening, tightening is doing the opposite. It's actually shrinking the money supply that's out there uh, by um, selling some of their portfolio and pulling money into in-house. So they're pulling money out of the system. Tapering is in between. It's, it's taking that quantitative easing and gradually reducing um, the amount of ease until you finally get to zero and then move to tightening. And so we're at the stage where we haven't even begun tapering yet. Um, and I'm thinking probably the end of the year you'll get to that point where they'll start reducing the ease, not tightening, reducing the ease. And then of course the Fed has kind of put out a, a timeline where they think by the middle of next year, they might've gotten to uh, zero ease just before tightening. And that tightening might happen sometime in the latter part of the next year. What I would tell you is that, you know, Fed's intentions or what they put out as possible intentions oftentimes aren't what our reality. So if inflation moves up, you can see the tightening come sooner. If we get a slowdown in the economy, you could see them put off even the tapering or some of the tapering. 
and tightening could happen after. So people have to be careful not to think that because the Fed has a forecast, that's etched in stone because they can adjust it at every meeting. You know, it's interesting, David. Um, I feel like more and more people are sort of expecting there to be a really big crash. You've obviously been predicting this sort of um, devastating financial crisis, this deflationary bust for a while now. But even average people like I'm, I've been out at restaurants and a waitress will be like, there's a crash coming. I feel it. It seems like that like energy is in the air. Um, so what do you think will actually cause that? Because it seems like the Fed is ready to step in and continue to provide the markets with money and they want to avoid a crash. So what's actually going to cause the bust? Yeah, that's interesting because, as you know, I'm a contrarian. So now that everybody agrees with me, it's like, what do I have to change? You know, what's wrong <laughs> with my forecast? Um, I, I think part of the reason I am pretty confident about the melt-up is because so many people today are focused on a crash um, and think everybody, and I mean everybody on Wall Street and, like you say, an awful lot of uh, people on Main Street are focused on markets at a top or markets past the top or just about to the top. And I think when you get that kind of mentality or that kind of a narrative out there that's so popular, you know, you're probably not there. Um, so, um, but what I, I guess I kind of, um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think the way I kind of deal with it myself in terms of here's my view and everybody's agreeing with me now is, I think you're going to see a big change in the next three or four months in terms of if we truly get this melt up, you're going to see a lot of those people that today are talking about a top and talking about a crash will have forgotten all about that in a few months and say, you know, because some of the things will have changed to make them more bullish, but also because of the what I call the tape, which is the market momentum, um, it changes psychology and you will see them much more. Um, bullish at the top. Um, so, but, you know, part of the reason everybody sees the possibility of a crash is it's not hard to look around and see our country's in trouble. I mean, we've got a lot of things that are not going right. Um, there's a real have and have not situation in the economy. Um, there's still, you know, seven or eight uh, million people unemployed. Um, the government's spending money like um, they have it forever and they don't, um, you know, there's a lot of worries about things out there. Some of it's misplaced. I think, you know, we have people worried about, um, uh, maybe higher interest rates and things prematurely, um, things like that. I, I think crash is partly correctly analyzed and partly is just People are getting caught up in, you know, social media and everywhere else is is uh, kind of push this stuff out there much faster. Right. Well, I mean, going back to what you said about people looking for a top, you know, we did have the Evergrande situation in China. People started to think, hey, maybe this is the the thread sort of pulling apart. Um, people comparing it, obviously, to Lehman Brothers, and then there was. Obviously, people within the, the Federal Reserve selling their own stocks and people thinking that maybe they know something's coming. When will we know that we're in the bust? Like, what are signs to look for? What, what do you think will actually cause it? Yeah, the, the cause will probably be Fed tightening um, and maybe central bank tightening around the world, but, but certainly Fed tightening 
So that's when when the Fed's actually um, pulling money out of the system. And probably prior to the Fed even doing anything, it's the bond market. When you see rates moving, I'm, I'm calling for, as you know, a 2.5% 10-year, probably out in the next six months. Um, if you see the 10-year, which is currently you know, 135, 136, if you see that up over 2%, you're well on your way to tightening. The Fed may not have actually started their tightening, but the bond market's doing it for you. Uh, so I would say that's probably your first signal. Um, the second signal will be the stock market itself. It will top out. And when you begin to see that rolling over, um, the stock market will lead the bust. And that's, frankly, that's why you've got so many people focused right now on, you know, are we at the top? Are we very near the top? Has the top already happened in the stock market? Because they know that when that happens, what follows is the economy. So, um, so you know, what you're going to get is a lot of false calls where people think the top is here already. And then you, you know, you get a pullback like you had in the last week. And then it goes again to higher highs. And then people do it again. So it's a stair-step process. Ultimately, you will get to a top where the step down isn't 5%. The step down is next thing you know, you're down 20%. When you see that, it's probably a sign that we've begun the rollover and the economy usually lags the stock market by several months. So, you know, let's say we top in the market late this year, you know, you may not see the actual reasons for that top and the, and the sell-off um, for many months yet or several months, but, Ultimately, um, it's usually a six-month lag from from a, a stock market top to a, an economic top. I have a feeling it's going to be a little shorter this time just because of the leverage in the system, but we'll see. Well, in order to unwind all the leverage that you were talking about, we need a little bit of painful medicine, right? No one wants a bust, but sometimes it's the only thing that's going to um, alleviate some of the malinvestments and some of this leverage, and that's going to be very painful for people in the middle class or people who are lower income. And obviously politics comes into play because I don't think any politician who wants to seek reelection is willing to admit what actually needs to be done or how bad and how dire the situation really is. Um, what do you think about just sort of the state of politics right now? And in a deflationary bust, you're probably going to have leaders who promise that they're going to be the ones fixing it and they're going to provide people with maybe universal basic income. They're going to give them even more money when really it seems like the thing we need to stop doing is spending so much money by the government. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think, um, you know, you're, you're going to have, I think, no doubt about it, um, because if, if the bus happens in 2022, the Democrats are going to be in charge and they're less interested in fiscal responsibility. Let's put it that way. Um, kindly, I'll put it that way. Um, they really believe that, you know, we can continue to print money ad infinitum and therefore we can afford to provide all kinds of things just because it seems like a, you know, a free lunch. Yeah. It's not a free lunch because what comes with that expansion of money it, with a lag is inflation. And what I talked about before, you know, ultimately double digit interest rates. Um, and then you can't afford what you created. Um, so the problem is it doesn't happen now. If you're going through deflation, 
it's going to look easy to print money because it doesn't look like inflation's anywhere to be found. So they're going to be printing money, not not so much to give free lunches as much as you know. The central bank's going to say, "We got to do this because if we don't, we're going to have a collapse." So, um, but the from the federal standpoint, federal government standpoint, they're also going to be doing all kinds of stimulus. So look at March of 2020, and that's a microcosm of what's coming in 2022, um, I believe. So you'll see, you know. I talk about 20 or 30 trillion in, in you know, federal balance and federal reserve balance sheet, you'll see a, a equal type of expansion in federal government. It, it will pretty much be dollar for dollar mar- matched. You'll have the Fed monetizing whatever the government's doing. You know, on the one hand, it's because they have to, because we're in the midst of a, what I think will be the biggest um, financial crisis in history. Um, so they have to respond. But the problem is there is a huge cost to it down the road. And by the time you realize that cost, it's too late. That's, that's essentially my forecast. So yes, you're right. The middle class is gonna suffer. The low income uh, people are gonna suffer. The, the high end is gonna suffer. We're gonna see more wealth destruction next year, I think, um, once we get past this last move um, than we've, we've ever seen. And, and that's, you know, that's not something that's going to be fun to live through. So what I tell people is have your own houses in order and, you know, make sure you're able to withstand whatever comes your way, loss of income, what have you. Uh, and that's not always easy to do. I mean, some people aren't in a position to be able to do that, but, you know, it's the, the good news for the, for the low income, at least in the next year or two, is as we saw in 2020 uh, and and since is they they will be providing all kinds of um, support systems. The problem you have to worry about is when we get to the 2030s and maybe before, but certainly 2030s, when I think we are going to see a bankrupt government that will not be able to do that. That's what that's what the problem is with doing this now, and what we've done for the last many years is that there comes a time when you pay the piper yeah. and we won't be able to service our debt. You can't service your debt. You're, ba- you're basically unable to raise capital. You're unable to go out to the capital market and say, we want to sell more bonds to have more money to give to people. You know, that's the end of the, that's the end of the musical chair game. You know, the music stops and you have no chair, you know, or, or the other way I put it is basically that's the beginning of the end of the Ponzi scheme. We have had, you know, a couple of bubbles over the last three decades. It seems like we've replaced the dot-com bubble with the housing bubble and now the housing bubble with like a U.S. Treasury bubble. I mean, why why do we keep doing this? It seems like we've gotten ourselves in this own situation and we need almost an adult to, you know, take the wheel of the car before we careen off the cliff and maybe we have to go into a ditch. I think Peter Peter Schiff has made this analogy. Maybe we go into a ditch and we there's some damage, but we won't go off the entire cliff. Yeah, I I view it as some somewhat of an inevitability. Um, I talk about a super cycle, which is what I call the, the big, cycle between two depressions, the, the Great Depression of, of the 1930s being the, the beginning of the cycle, you know, what followed the Great Depression, and the next depression being the 2030s. So this, this global bust next year is not a depression. So, um, but 
in a super cycle, what you do is you just, you start out gradually, you know, the system's been cleansed, you're kind of rebuilding and it builds up slowly and then it accelerates as you move through a super cycle. So a super cycle is typically 80 or 90 years is what it seems to be. We're, we're in the latter stages of that super cycle, the last decade of it. And I think it's, it, you know, the last, certainly the last 15 or 20 years, um, we're seeing more volatility, as you say, bubbles or, you know, big extremes. And then, you know, the opposite, it comes crashing down and then you build it back up. And that's part of, that's, that's why this next one is, you know, my forecast sounds crazy when I talk about a global deflationary bust and the biggest financial crisis in history, and then talk about them blowing it all up again with more money and more debt, and then a total collapse in the 2030s. It just sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of way too extreme. It's where we are in the cycle, frankly. And so, yes, the, you know, the dot-com bubble was big, but it was somewhat concentrated. It wasn't the whole market. It wasn't the whole economy. Um, the housing, what, what came out of that was the housing bubble. Again, a lot of money put in to try to get us out of there. Um, that was big. Uh, and then a, a big, um, what, what to that point was the biggest decline, biggest downturn in, in the post-World War II era. But then the medicine for that that's been ongoing through this whole cycle um, has led us to an even bigger bubble. And, and what's going to come from that even bigger bubble is an even bigger downside and, and then require an even bigger response, which leads to you know, what we're talking about. And, and you know, the reason we have the ability to blow it up this time again is because inflation, although it's high right now, I believe because of the biggest financial crisis in history next year, I believe you're going to see inflation go from, you know, almost double digits this year, or certainly high single digits, um, down to negative next year. And in that negative next year, um, as I say, central banks have almost infinite ability to print money if there's no inflation, right? If you have deflation or no inflation, because there's a lag to when that money will lead to another inflation problem and an even bigger one. And they're gonna be dealing with the here and now. They're not gonna say, gee, if we print too much money today, it might mean inflation two or three years from now. They're going to be saying, I can't worry about that. I've got a system to save. You know, our system's falling apart. So, so they have that, that ability one more time to blow it up, to, to you know, bring it back again. The problem is, by the end of the decade, the inflation's through the roof. And, and once, once you have very high inflation, uh, and it looks like sustainable inflation where every little dollar you print, just pours more fuel on that inflation fire. Once you get to that point, the Fed's out of the ballgame. The central banks around the world are out of the ballgame. They will not be able to print a, a penny, and they'll be tightening. And, and, and if you have, if we have $250 trillion in global debt today, I think by the end of the decade, or we're probably going to blow that to your $400 trillion before the, oh, that debt bubble is going to be enormous. And that, again... I think that's the the granddaddy of debt bubbles, and it, it comes to an end. So I, I always say the difference between me and the Peter Schiffs of the world is they think we're at that point now. I go, if you think this is bad, wait till you you know you see what's out there six or seven years from now, 
and we won't have any ability to keep it going. Right. And it's, it's kind of scary because in a situation where we have to face sort of the, the consequences of what we've been doing the last several decades, um, that can invite some very scary um, people to power, people who are promising to bring us out of it um, in a way that might, might lead us into a more extreme, you know, area of politics. I feel like people already think things are extreme on both sides, but really when so many people are suffering and if it's something even worse than the Great Depression, um, people are going to be clinging out of fear to someone who's going to be promising them a solution or hope. And, and that could come in some very scary forms. Do you agree with that? Yeah, we're, we're seeing that already, obviously. I mean, it's, it's really hard for somebody preaching fiscal responsibility when when people are saying, yeah, but I can have more money in my pocket. I'm getting, you know, they're sending me monthly child child credit stipends right now. Why do I want to vote for the other party when I can get these free lunches? And, you know, so it's hard for people to understand that there's a downside to that. Um, uh, you know, I do, I do think that we likely, if I'm right, that we get to the 2030s, and it's not, again, not just U.S., this will be global. Right. We have a collapse of the system we've known you know, our whole lives. Um, the likelihood is that vacuum gets filled by something that's not good. It's totalitarian. It's basically, um, you know, that's that's my fear anyway. It's very hard to forecast stuff like that at this point. But but I think history tells you that that's what you have to worry about. And you know, once you lose control, um, you open up all kinds of you know, po possibilities that are not very promising. David, a lot of people blame capitalism for some of the problems that we see in America today. We see the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. But there's um, there's a reason why a lot of this is happening, and it has to do with why money is flowing in certain places in the stock market, the form of, you know, maybe stock options that CEOs get. Can you expand on that? Sure. Yeah, back it's true. We, we really aren't in capitalism anymore. This is not free market capitalism as, as we were taught it in, in the economic books. Um, we're, we're what is definitely crony capitalism now. And I, I, I attribute it to what happened back in the 1980s when we kind of changed the whole system of compensation in business um, where stock options became very popular. Um, you know, the, there was there was a good reason behind it in terms of the idea of we're going to incentivize our our managements. They're they're going to get paid based on um, their performance, and they decided the performance would be tied to the stock. But that allowed, um, first of all, they they then started granting stock options to CEOs and senior managements, and the boards didn't mind doing that. It didn't really cost much. It didn't cost the company much. Um, but it led to where, you know, CEOs that used to make a million dollars are all of a sudden making 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe even a hundred million dollars. Um, and it just wasn't, it wasn't realistic. I hear people today on Wall Street, you know, my brethren arguing, hey, it's free market. You know, you don't penalize the, the CEOs. If they're doing a good job, they deserve it. No, they don't deserve that kind of money. Nobody does. That was, a, we've gamed the system. And so you've got crony capitalism, you got, you know, you've really um, seen a huge divide between the haves and the have nots. Um, 
and you know hedge funds had their own little game going on uh, in terms of you know what they could do so i i just think in the last 30 years we've gone off the rails in terms of what capitalism should be free markets are a great allocator of capital and and in the end if it's practiced properly you can have a very sound system where the you know the people at the low end have opportunity and if they work hard can can rise to a much higher end um, but when you're in crony capitalism no wonder people have so much distrust in our system no wonder people you know we hear in the polls that a lot of people in the younger generations believe communism is better yeah. it sure isn't it's a horrible system um, you know it would be much worse than what we have now with our government running things but but um, but I understand the reasons they're turning their back on capitalism because what they're seeing is horrible, but it's not real capitalism. It's crony capitalism. Yeah. So what's your reaction when you see people, politicians maybe saying tax the rich? Yeah, that doesn't solve any problems. Uh, the rich are, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but the top 1% are paying 40 or 50% of all income taxes in this country. And the top 10% are paying probably uh, 75% or 80% of the taxes. So, you know, taxing the rich sounds great. And, and certainly to someone who's not rich, it feels like, yeah, get those guys. They all have lots of money and they're, you know, and I'm sitting here in my, in my poor shape. Um, so I get it, but it's, it's economically not going to help us. It's almost every time they do that or every time they do that, um, the poor suffer the most. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a form of, of socialism. It's a form of um, moving in a direction of communism. Um, I, I would like to see a flat tax, frankly. Um, tax everybody equally. And certainly, you know, you probably, if you do it right, your first $75,000 is tax-free or certainly $60,000 is tax-free. So even the bottom end benefits, and then just do it, you know, straight across the board, 25% tax, because it takes away all the loopholes that, you know, the more often are tilted towards the wealthy, takes away a lot of things where maybe the tax rate is high, but the ultimate tax that you raise from that person is, is not nearly that high. If you have a flat tax, it simplifies everything. It's much more efficient. It, it helps. I think it gets you back to a much purer form of capitalism. Uh, so flat tax would be one thing I'd support. And really, I think this whole compensation system where we use uh, stock options to such extremes is way out of control as well. With the talk of inflation all around us, why do you think um, gold has underperformed so much as sort of a hedge to all of this? I mean, over the last 10 years and also this year, I'm just really surprised myself to not see gold having any of the rallies that you are predicting. Yeah, it's a puzzle, man. It's certainly where I get most of my pushback these days. Um, I would have thought gold and silver would have moved by now based on what inflation has done, based on, you know, the dollar's been stronger this year, but had come down a lot in the last year. So there's a lot of reasons why gold and silver should be up. But as I learned long ago, markets kind of have their own time frames and they move when they're ready. Um I, I do think people lose perspective. You know, gold's at 1,800 or almost 1,800. Uh, not quite there today. It's going down. But um, 
it, it was, um, you know, 1460, I think, uh, 18 months ago. So we've, we've come a ways. Yes, it's down from 2100 where it got to last year. Uh, it's spent over a year now in consolidation. But everything I see looks like it's a, you know, a coiled spring that will get going soon. Um, every time it starts to lift its head, it seems to get knocked back down, just like today. But I see this all as kind of part of the bottom building, uh, the base building that I think is setting up for a very big um, move up in both gold and silver over the next you know, three to six months. Um, I, you know, my targets, as you know, are 2,500 for gold um, and silver probably 45 or 50. And that hasn't changed. What I see in this last 13 month consolidation makes me more bullish, not less bullish. So um, I just tell people, you know, kind of, kind of don't watch it every day because that's part of the problem is everybody's, you know, wanting to see this stuff get to those levels in a hurry. Yeah. It'll, it'll happen when it happens. Well, a lot of people view uh, Bitcoin as digital gold, at least a lot of my listeners and viewers. Uh, since the last time we talked, have you explored cryptocurrencies more or at least looked into Bitcoin? Do you have any thoughts on, on Bitcoin? Um, no, I'm still pretty much uh, an ignoramus when it comes to Bitcoin and, and crypto. But my, my view is, is still the same, which is I want to see it get tested in the bust. I, I worry about lots of things in terms of will will China? I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of the attraction of Bitcoin is it can get outside the system, and obviously in a in a totalitarian system like China, getting outside the system would be nice uh, and is popular over there. You know, is China going to allow that to go on forever? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, our our central banks around the world, are they going to allow it to be an unregulated, uh, you know, separate kind of parallel system? I don't think so. So, so there's those kind of things that they still have to face. And there's also lots of other things that bother me about the, the speculative nature of it, that, you know, people are in it because it's doing well. well. Watch how fast it loses interest if, if you know, Bitcoin all of a sudden is, is back back down 50 percent you know it's it's amazing how whether it's bitcoin whether it's gold whether it's stock market bond market if if the you know if the uh trend is moving from the bottom left to the top right it gains a lot of interest if it's moving from from the top and going down it loses a lot of interest and you know i don't think crypto is any different but other than that, I can't. I, I can only say anybody listening to me about anything to do with crypto is is listening to somebody that doesn't know much. <laughs> well, you know, Bitcoiners are very critical of the central planners, and one of their really big concerns is that the amount of money printing that we've seen over the last several decades has led to a debasement of our currency, of our U.S. dollar, and the U.S. you know dollar's purchasing power is just taking a nosedive down, especially since the pandemic. And so they really want a system in which um, you can't inflate the money supply, and they see gold as being a little bit more you know cumbersome. There's some physical uh, obstacles to why it may not be the most um, the most, you know, the the monetary system moving forward that makes the most sense when we live in such a digital world. 
But uh, I just wanted to get kind of your thoughts on the U.S. dollar, because you talk a little bit about that in your predictions of the deflationary bust, people first flocking to the U.S. dollar and then really it losing probably its global reserve status over the next 10 years, right? Yeah, that's true. I, uh, the shorter term, I believe the dollar is poised for a, a decline here that's pretty substantial. I think you can go from you know, the 93 level we're at now on DXY down to uh, potentially 80. And I think that can happen over the next uh, six months. Um, and then I think you'll see in the global bust that if, you know, my timing can be off, but if in fact we have a global bust in 2022, I think the, the U.S. dollar will still, in spite of all the problems, still be viewed as the uh, safest currency among, among the regulated currencies in the world. And you will see people run to it, um, and meaning all over the world, investors running to it. And I think it'll drive the dollar from 80 back up to, say, 120 to 140, probably get there uh, you know, within a year or a year and you know, 12 to 18 months, let's say. Um, and then from there, so that takes you out to sometime in 2023, probably the latter part of 2023. From there, I think it's all downhill for the dollar and, and for the balance of the, um, the decade. I think you could see the dollar down well south of 80, maybe south of 50 at some point, just simply because, you know, we, we have a country that is not being managed very well right now and hasn't been managed very well for a long time in terms of its fiscal situation. Uh, it's, it's a worldwide problem, but I think the dollar has farther to go on the downside because of our problems. Um, so, yeah, I think by the time you get to the, the 2030s, I think the dollar's in real trouble. It's probably at that point either lost its reserve status or is very close to losing it. Wow. I mean, that's really scary for a lot of people to hear, right? And it seems like um, the federal government would do anything it could to stop it, like especially if a Bitcoin were to threaten the status of the U.S. dollar. They would want to kind of overregulate it, overtax it, I'm sure. Um, but do you feel like there's kind of no stopping this when it comes to like a deflationary bust? perhaps, you know, the, the continued debasement of the dollar on a global level. Do you think that there's anything we can do at this point to avoid that? Frankly, no. I, I think everything is pretty much the seeds are sown, as I put it, um, in that we have, you know, this has been building up for decades. You know, the last, certainly the last 20 has been the worst of it. But even before that, you know, 30, 30 and 40 years ago, we had this idea that we could live live for today and spend tomorrow's money today. Uh, it's both true on the private end as well as in the government, but more so in the government. And we've, I mean, we just have blown up uh, the numbers we talked about. I mean, there's 250 plus trillion dollars in debt around the world. That's a number that nobody could put their, their arms around. I mean, what is that? And then on top of that, you've got, you know, this, these derivatives that didn't even exist 30 years ago that are now in the quadrillions in terms of what they represent, you know, the notional value. Um, so you've got, and those are both what I call leverage or uh, what you can call leverage on a system. Um, and so you've just got way, way too much um, leverage in the system to be able to handle the times when there's policy errors or the times when things get 
a little bad because leverage just takes it, exacerbates it by a lot. And it did when, when we only had, you know, a tenth of the debt we have now or, or you know, a hundredth of the leverage we have now, it would, it would be painful during downturns. You get a downturn now with that kind of leverage and things can get really bad really fast. So, so that's my whole thesis is that next year you have a global bust and because of a global bust, um, you have to then react with a lot of money and get a lot of money and, and easing. Um, and because the bust will mean something bigger than we've had in 80 years, you're going to run into a situation where the response is going to be bigger than anything we've ever seen by, uh, by multitudes. So um, just an example, as I said, the balance sheet now is 8.5 trillion on the Fed. Um, that's probably going to go to 20 trillion, maybe 30 trillion in, in response to the bust. Those are numbers way beyond anything we can handle. And that's just the Fed. There'll be similar type moves by every central bank because this is going to be a global situation. Um, China's got all kinds of problems we're beginning to see, obviously, with Evergrande. Um, I think uh, China's going to be a big part of next year. So, you know, the whole thing just means we have the tail wagging the dog in a big way. Um, so, and then what that does is creates the opposite. So you go through what I call a deflationary bust, won't last probably too long. I mean, it could be 12 months, um, but it'll be, you know, the worst downturn in post-World War II era, in my opinion, uh, global downturn. But then all that money that's printed and all that debt, that all that fiscal expansion that's created to try to get us out of the bust, then jumpstart something that will be, we're seeing inflation right now kind of roaring ahead. Wait till you see it after that kind of a, a response. You'll be, you know, you'll be in say five years at inflation levels that are just not manageable. How do you manage the debt? How do you service it when interest rates are so high, et cetera? It just leads to a point where there's no return, where there has to be a collapse. So the bust is the precursor of what I think is something much worse, you know, probably in the 2030s. Well, as I start to wrap up here, just curious to get your thoughts. Do you think that we could ever return to a system of sound money and peg maybe the U.S. dollar or whatever replaces it to something like gold or maybe digital gold. I, I mean, do you think that that would fix some of the problems that we've been having over the decades since we veered off the gold standard and really now we can print as much money as we want with nothing backing it? Yeah, let's put it this way. I, I always say, um, you know, I always criticize the Austrians because they, they hate the central banking system for good reason, um, you know, for what it's done. Um, but they, they want to go on a gold standard or something like that. And I go, if we did that now, we'd all be living in caves in a few years. I mean, you, you know, the only thing keeping this thing going is money. Um, it's not that I endorse that. It's just that the reality is policymakers, um, both Fed officials or central, bank, central bankers or government officials are never going to... Um, purposely engineer something that that you know causes the collapse so they're always going to want to respond which the only response that is timely right now is money so once we get you know the time when it ends is when 
their hands are tied. It's not their choice. It's because of inflation, their hands will be tied. So I, I don't see a reset as anything that's uh, realistic or viable, certainly in the next decade. After the collapse in the 2030s, all bets are off. I have no idea what will come out of the ashes of that, but it's, it's not gonna be a quick recession, depression, whatever. I think you're talking about, I mean, I, I don't even want to go into what it can mean in terms of how many people are out on the street and unemployed, et cetera. It's a collapse of the system around the world. Um, and, you know, I think what, as we said, what could fill that is totalitarianism. Maybe we, we get lucky and somehow something rises out of that that is more of a, you know, a, a fixed system again. But, you know, we, we went off the gold standard a long time ago and blew this thing up, and, and we're in the late stages of that. I don't see anything altering that for, you know, the decade to come. After that, it's, you know, who knows? Well, we've been so positive and so cheerful <laughs> talking about this, um, but let's try to, let's try to um, put some rose-colored glasses on and Think of the opportunities that might exist, especially for people who are younger and trying to plan their financial future. Um, you know, I'm a millennial, and it seems like I graduated into a recession. Now I'm I'm spending a, a pivotal moment in my in my adult life in another, you know, potential financial crisis. It's very scary. But where are opportunities for people to actually make money on this or protect their money? Yeah, actually, that's a good question, and probably more important than what we talked about because it's something you can control. Um, I do believe um, that, yes, we have you know, a, a bear market coming. We've got you know, this melt up into a bear market. What comes out of that bear market, uh, beginning probably late next year or in 2023, is a new recovery cycle. And that recovery cycle will have totally different leadership than the leadership that we've had um, this whole cycle. So that means, you know, it's a new playbook. That playbook will really um, be focused on things like commodities, industrial stocks, things that are showing some favor or have shown some favor in the last year, but really are nowhere near what has happened with tech and growth stocks, etc. The next cycle is really going to favor the commodity sector. That means oil, copper, precious metals, um, as well as industrial companies, um, and be less oriented towards the consumer or tech. You'll, you'll have those tech companies that are, you know, emer emerging tech that, you know, has great growth prospects and stuff that can outpace inflation. But basically, just understand the next cycle is going to be a very different um, leadership and those that understand that going into the next cycle will make lots of money. Those that try to just stay with their indexing process, you know, stay, you know, uh, dollar cost averaging into index funds or what have you, they're going to be surprised because as interest rates move up, that will hurt um, PE multiples and overall index funds won't make a lot of progress where, you know, commodities can triple, quadruple, et cetera, in, in the next cycle. So, so I think that's probably the thing I would take away more than anything else is that there is another cycle after this. And there's some real opportunities to make money if you're in the right places. I know you talk about this being a global bust, uh, but do you think that being in the United States is probably 
better than being in maybe some other countries when all of this unfolds? I think so. We we really got hit hard, obviously, in 2008-9 because of subprime. I think our banks are in better shape this time because of the lessons they learned. They they may still they'll they'll certainly get hit, but not as hard as they did in 2008-9. The areas like Europe and Australia and China, I think, are are places where there's you know much much greater excesses and therefore much more risk. Uh, Canada's not, you know, Canada, unfortunately, they were in great shape. Their banking system was much better in 2008-9 than ours. This time around, they look like we did. So they're more at risk. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, in some ways, will be better. And yet I'm still calling for an 80% bear market here. So I'm not saying it's going to be easy pickings here either. I mean, it must be so hard to uh, predict the timing, right? And I know that a lot of people flock to you and they want to know when the bust is going to happen. You always make adjustments, right? You're very flexible because you have to be and it's not like you're you're in control of any of this. So can you talk a little bit just about how um, the timing has sort of changed for you, right? And and you've you've predicted things and had to had to make adjustments to um, timing and you try to avoid that, it seems, to, to not give people an idea of, this is how you should trade because it's going to happen on, on this month. Yeah, I, I probably make the mistake of answering people when they ask for timing and, and I'd be better off just saying who knows. But, but um, you know, I think the biggest problem is that people don't know the difference between um, trading. Uh, they basically don't know the difference between trading and investing and they don't know the difference between trading and a forecast. So in, in today's world, with with the advent of so much information and so many uh, computers that provide trading systems, et cetera, I find today's investor is much more trading oriented than when I came into the business. You know, 48 years ago, we were, you know, I was on the institutional side running pension money, so it was longer term anyway. But but I just think today people, it's almost like they're they're more interested in gambling. You know, they their neurons are firing and they want to do things fast. They want to make money quickly. You know, investing is really, uh, you know, when I was doing it uh, as a professional, it was kind of a three to five year horizon. You're buying low and selling high. You're not looking to what kind, you know, what kind of money do I make in the next three months or six months? And I think today, you know, the attitude, I'm not even sure it's three to six months. It's like, I want to make money and get out in two weeks, you know? Um, so there's much more of a trading uh, uh, mentality out there. And those traders that are so dominant on social media don't get that a forecast is a, you know, you're predicting a whole cycle. And the prediction is about the future in terms of where is this cycle going. Economies don't move swiftly. Uh, you know, our brains move swiftly in terms of talking about inflation coming or, you know, something happening. It evolves just like we had a slowdown this summer. And I said, I think that slowdown will lead to a reacceleration, that it's not the end of the cycle, that you'll see economy reaccelerate. Re well, in traders' minds, you know, a few days go by and it's like, have you changed your mind yet? The economy is still slow. Another data point came out. And I go, this is who knows whether it's going to pick up in September, October, or November. It's you know, the economy is something that happens over over a period of time. And it's the same thing with the market. You know, when I'm calling for a top in the market, I can say, yeah, it might happen by June. And then when it doesn't, everybody says, well, you were wrong. And it's like, 
I'm not expecting it to happen by June. It could happen then. You know, it could happen in December. It could happen, you know, after the beginning of the year. It's, you know, these are big cycle things. You know, again, as I say, this is a 39-year top. If I get within a couple months of the top, I'm doing pretty darn good. So uh, obviously, shorter term, I'm looking at things and just adjusting to get get there. But, you know, again, I'm not bothered by a 13-month consolidation in, in gold because it's a, a high levels consolidation or I'm seeing you know, uh, miners um, basically go through a 50% retracement of the gains they made from March 2020 to August. Those are normal things in a market. A trader doesn't want those. They just want to go, you know, they want to have instant gratification. It doesn't work that way. So forecasts, it's not that I'm wrong because it didn't happen as fast as I said it might. Yeah. It's it's that uh, the record and why I don't worry about this stuff. I'm not playing a game. It's that you recognize it's, it's going to be what it is. The market, you know, the, the economy is going to evolve as it evolves. And you're just kind of guessing at timing. Yeah, no, it's so interesting to watch you on Twitter and some of the comments that you get because you're right. People are just looking for that top and they get very nervous very quickly. And then they flock to you to see if, you know, you're saying it's the bust, it's the bust. And you always respond just so calm, cool and collected. You're like, nope, we're going even higher, actually. <laughs> I think it's awesome. But, you know, the last thing I want to want to say is um, it really it really speaks to me when you talk about that time horizon. It's one of the things I love about Bitcoin as well. You know, we do live in a society that wants instant gratification. And I think when your money is worth less and less every year, it encourages you to not think about the future because how much is your money going to be worth 10, 20 years from now? You want to spend it and use it now. And we've just turned into this very, um, you know, high time preference society, which is really, really sad because we're not thinking about our future as a as an individual, as a family, and as a collective, as much. Um, and so I don't. I, I'm not trying to orange pill you, but if there was a currency that was invented and it it had a deflationary monetary policy, and it you know anyone could access it around the entire world with just a phone and internet connection, do you would you be for something like that? If it if it was reliable and it was incorruptible and it just provided a chance for people to store their their hard-earned um, you know, time and money somewhere that's not going to be inflated by government. Would you be for the idea of something like that? The, the only way I'll answer that is to say, if this were 1960 and you made that, you, you know, threw that question at me, I'd say, absolutely. It's just, it's, it's fantasy today. It can't <laughs> happen. So that's, that's my response is yes. I, I'm, you know, I, I, criticize the Austrians for wanting to go on a gold standard again or whatever, not because I'm, I'm a monetarist. I'd love to have a monetary rule that says we're not going to increase money more than 2% a year going forward, or we're not going to increase money supply. It's, you know, it's all up to the private sector to, to boost growth. Um, you can't do it from where we're at. You know, if, if this were even 1960, we we're doing stupid things, but nothing like now. Um, so, so I, I can't, I, I can't with with what I know, I can't answer that question in any other way than see at least from my perspective, it's fantasy. Okay. Well, last final thoughts, any takeaways you want people to know that you haven't mentioned um, and how people can find you? Sure. Um, we didn't talk about uh, much about bonds, but just know that the stock market's 
coming into a bubble. The bond market is too. And, and I think in the bust, you'll get your final on the treasury side, your final move in bonds up so that, you know, you might get it from a two and a half percent tenure, you might go down to a zero tenure, uh, maybe even go a little negative. Um, so you do have, you know, in treasuries and a higher high coming uh, later on, but um, you know, on the corporate side, you're, you're, you know, the spreads are very narrow. Historic spreads are at their lows. Um, and I think we have to be aware that in the next cycle, inflation's coming and interest rates are going a lot higher. That means bonds are going a lot lower. So just be aware that we, we talk about stocks so much, but bonds are, are a big risk going forward. And again, I'm talking about the bigger picture, not the next three months. Um, and, um, and then other than that, yeah, people can find me on Twitter um, at Dave H. Contrarian. Um, try to ignore. There are some uh, phony accounts out there that use my profile. Uh, and some are, you know, people think they're funny, but unfortunately, they are also some trying to make money off you. It's a scam. So just be aware. Um, and then um, I do have a, an investment letter that if people are interested, it's by subscription. There's, you know, price to it. But if people are interested, they can just uh, direct message me on Twitter and I'll be glad to get right back to them.